0: This morning, we are on the final commandment, Thou shalt not covet, and I've titled this the, Thou shalt not covet the heart of the matter, the heart of the matter. Um, so if we can put the, the slides up for the Ten Commandments for a minute, as we've been going through them, as you, these are the commandments over here. the the word It's actually better translated, the ten words, these ten words, and if somebody counts them, they go, there's more than ten, it's because some of them combine, and in fact, we're combining the last two there. Um, we notice they break, in, they break across the Sabbath, above the Sabbath. It's about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Below, it's about taking that image of God who we are and respecting it in others and bestowing that image to others, giving others the right to be imagers of God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And so this is how we've, we've been going through these. And so this morning, we're, we're in particular going to be doing Thou shalt not covet the heart of the matter. So um, what we're going to do, I'm going to define what covet is and give some examples of the good uses and bad uses of the word. Um, and, um, and then we're going to do kind of this, this eight-fold steps. I'm going to try to jump through some steps. Some of them we'll spend a little more time. Some will go quickly. But what we're going to find is that this, it's a, it, it, it's, it seems at first to be a strange commandment. Why is this commandment in there with all the others? And everything else gives us something to do or not do. This one just says something about something inside. So it seems strange. We're going to examine that. And, and how does it fit? Why is this the last thing God felt that he needed to speak personally himself? And what we're going to discover, is, I hope, is the genius and the wisdom of God as we do this And then ultimately, uh, when we get through the steps, we'll be seeing how we can apply this in our lives. So that's kind of the map. So what is coveting? So Tyndale Bible Dictionary says it's to desire inordinately, to place the object of desire before love, before devotion to God. So something you desire more than loving others, more than being devoted to God. It's uh, uh, the Greek word that's used for this. Literally means inordinate desire to have more. It's that 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 me. That's that, it's self interest, selfish. I want more. Um, the 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 Hebrew word chamad, which is used in multiple places, designates entertaining a desire to possess what another person has. You look at what somebody else has and you want it. So. Now, that word covet actually in the Scriptures can be used in a good way and a bad way. I'm not going to go through. I've got lots of Scriptures for the good way. If you ask me for my notes, I'll send them to you. I have lots of Scriptures you can look at. But I'm going to just point out one or two. Proverbs 10 says this. What the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. What the Scriptures are saying is you can covet righteousness. You can inordinately desire righteousness. You can you can you can use all of you are to say, I desire righteousness. Um, in Luke twenty-two it says, And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I su- suffer. Jesus earnestly desiring fellowship with us. Jesus covets fellowship with his uh, uh, with his family. Um, I'm gonna jump down to the to the last one. Um, uh, I'm gonna jump down to Isaiah 26, verse nine, verse eight, eight and nine. It says, "In the paths of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. Your name and remembrance—to remember God, to exalt His name—we can covet exalting the name of God." And he goes on and says, "My soul yearns for you in in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks for you." For when, when your judgments are in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. that What he just said there is literally coveting the return of Christ. When will God's judgments be all throughout the earth? How many of us are coveting the righteousness of Jesus coming to earth? That yearn, earnestly longing for it, and therefore living it. All right, so, and there's lots more. I'm going to uh, go tell some examples of evil Because this is really where we're going to focus. This is what the commandment touches on. This is Psalm 10. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. So coveting is that boasting of desire, boasting of the evil, boasting of greed. Um, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. That lustful intent, that looking, and we'll examine this a little bit more later, that's coveting. Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. So it's looking at, you know, people who have used, who have gotten ill-gotten gain, who have harmed others and saying, well, look, they did it. Why can't I have it that way? It's it's looking at gang leaders and and looking at people who are unrighteous rulers and and how they have gotten over and saying, why can't I get it that way? That's coveting. Therefore, God gave them up. In the lusts of their heart to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among them. And so what's scary here with this one is literally if we allow covetousness to grow in our heart, it will eat us to the point where God will just give us over to it. He'll just give us over to it. He will give them up to the lusts of their heart. That's what coveting can do. All right, so. What's the commandment itself? The commandment itself is you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Now, we're going to look at Exodus twenty seventeen, and we're going to look at Deuteronomy 5, 21. I'm going to look at Exodus first, and I want us to pay attention. The reason why I'm doing both of them is there's a slight distinction between them, and there's a reason for it. Whenever the Scripture repeats itself, but it changes it a little bit, it's trying to communicate something to us. So Exodus 20, 17 says you shall not covet your neighbor's house, and it starts right there. You shall d- d- desire the house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And so what he's doing is he starts, well, I'll get there in a second. Let's listen to the second one. Now, this is the way Deuteronomy puts it. Deuteronomy says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So it starts with wife instead of house. And then it says, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house. Now it moves to house. And then it says, and his field, so it adds field, And it says, and his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. All right. So first thing we need to do, we'll break those two down in a minute, but we need to know something. Who is our neighbor? Well, in ancient Israel, it was any other member of Israelite society. It's not talking about the person who has the address right before yours. Okay? And so for us, it's literally any other fellow human being. That's what it means. We talk about neighbor. So first of all, just to make that clear, because it's not something that, well, I don't covet my neighbor's stuff, but my enemy, I want his stuff. No, that that doesn't work. That doesn't work. All right. So what's this difference between Exodus and Deuteronomy? What's going on there? Well, Exodus is saying when it says your house, it's an ancient way of saying literally everything under your roof, everything for which your neighbor is covering. And so what would be under the covering of your neighbor? That would be his wife, his relationship with his wife. It would be all the people in his house. It would be all the animals in his house, literally anything in his house so if it's under the tent of your neighbor don't covet it okay that's number 1 now deuteronomy makes a slight distinction because it starts off with don't covet his wife what's going on here what the scripture is doing is in the ancient world women were often looked at as property what the bible is doing saying no when we meant under your house we're not saying he was her property he is his wife. He is his equal. He is, you don't covet her in the same way you don't covet him. And he's ele- the scriptures elevating that unity in marriage and then returns back to the theme of the house being all other things in the house. And it adds land. Now, land is, why land? Because they were about to go in, Deuteronomy, they're about to go into the promised land. And when they go into the promised land, God's going to divide the land up. And so everybody's going to get their piece of land. And what he's saying, when you get your piece of land... Don't look at somebody else's land and say, I wanted that one. Be thankful for what God has given you. All right? So that's kind of the differences. All right, so let's take our journey here. How how is this the genius of God in all of this? Because at first, this is a strange commandment. At first, it looks very strange. Um, uh, uh, So if we th- we've we talked about this, these commandments are supposed to be the foundation of the Constitution of Israel, right? This is their Constitution. And and it's supposed to be how they're to operate as a nation. Well, laws, when we have laws in the book, they legislate actions, things we're to do. They don't legislate thoughts and attitudes. So act- why? Because actions can be monitored. I can see, did you do this? Did you not do this? We can monitor those. But thoughts and attitudes can't. I don't know what you're thinking. So the act of covenanting can actually be witnessed. So only visi- um, the only time coveting actually becomes visible is when I act out on that craving. I have a craving, nobody knows it. When I act out on it, somebody say you probably had a craving, right? But I can't actually, uh, you can't go into a human court and judge someone on the basis of an internal thought or an attitude. It, um, it cannot and would not be just, it cannot and would not be just to take someone to court and hold them accountable for what you think their thoughts are. That is an unjust law. You have no way of knowing. Only God can judge the heart. So why then this, this commandment? I mean, because only God can judge the heart. So there's something here about this. What I'm going to submit is that this literally demonstrates the genius and the wisdom of God over man. All right. How? First, Israel was to be a covenant community. They were to be in covenant with God. They were to be in covenant with one another. So in being in covenant with God, what does that mean? I'm going to love the Lord my God with all my heart. All my what? Heart. I'm going to love the Lord my God with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength. Covenant is relationship. What do we think of as covenant today? Marriage. It's relationship. They are to be in a covenant relationship with God. They're to be in a covenant relationship with their neighbor. So, covenant demonstrates that God's covenant never depends upon what's outside. It depends upon what's inside. How does it start? There is no other God but Yahweh. I am your God. If you're in a covenant relationship with me, it starts with your heart. The whole Ten Commandments started with your heart. If you remember all the way back when we started this, it was what was your heart? Where is it ending? What's your heart? beginning and ending with, what's your heart? Thou shalt not covet the heart of the matter. So loyalty to God always begins with an internal posture, and it's demonstrated outwardly. Believing loyalty to God, faith, it's an inward determination that I determine ahead of time, and then I live out my believing loyalty. That's what James said. So also faith by itself If it does not have works, it's dead. Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. What came first, the works of the faith? Faith. Faith. We're starting in faith. We're ending in faith. We're starting in faith. We're ending in faith. All right. so, So if I'm coveting, if I begin to covet, I'm literally violating the first principle of the entire Ten Commandments. To covet is literally to put someone or someone else in first place above God. It's to literally have an idol. What's it say? Thou shalt not have idols. What have I just done by coveting? I've literally demonstrated the essence of idolatry. And the New Testament says this word for word. Listen, here it is in Ephesians. Paul writes this. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Uh, therefore, in, in Colossians, uh, therefore put to put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and what covetousness, which is idolatry. It is idolatry. So, what's the first commandment? Don't have idols. The first half. What is he saying at the end? Well, when you don't covet. Why? Because that's idols. So literally the covet is to violate covenant with God. The covenant is to have an inordinate desire that belongs to someone, that that, that that which somebody else has, you're doing violence against it. That which someone else has, you're violating. Something or someone else has become your God. All right. So what does this imply then? Next step then, if this implies something very interesting. Um. You Remember when we looked at the covenant, thou shalt not steal, what did that imply? Private property rights are part of a moral ethical uh, 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 system. This implies the same thing. Because you can't covet something that doesn't belong to anyone. You're coveting something that belongs to someone else. It means that private property is uh, implied by this. Why is that important? Because right now I'm here to tell you there are movements in the world who are, who are literally trying to take private property away. Why is that a big deal? Because it literally violates the commandments of God. When governments, when organizations, when people, when individuals take your property away unjustly and unrightly, they are creating an immoral, unjust society. They are denying the very commandments of God themselves. That's what, ty- that's what tyrants do. That's why they call it communism and socialism. That's why they've been such tyrannies. Because they take away that which doesn't belong to them. Be careful what you wish for. So we'll take the next step here. We're going to take the next what Be careful what you wish for. Wishing to have good and proper things. How many know it's good to wish to have good and proper things? Why? Wow, yeah. I agree with you. It's good to wish to have good and proper things. Who wants more of the Holy Spirit? Who wants more of the Word of God in your life? Who wants more righteousness in your life? It's good to desire those things. Who wants spiritual gifts? Paul says, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. You know, uh, but wishing to have what is wrong is bad. So think about a society this way. This is supposed to be a law of a society. What people wish for has a major role to play in what kind of society they create. What kind of society are you and I trying to create? People able to curtail their wishing so that it is limited to things they should desire are people who contribute good to a society. Those who want what they cannot properly have undermine a society's moral fiber. What is this saying? This is calling us to what? Part of living as Christians in this world is to respect what someone else has, to respect their property, to respect what they belongs to them, what they have earned to lift them up in dignity. When we do that, what are we doing? We're we're not just obeying a commandment. We're literally creating a moral society. We're literally creating a world to live in, a place to live in that demonstrates the law of God. Be careful what you wish for. This is how Paul said it. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Owe no one anything but to love. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Any other commandment summed up in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. You see how when I'm loving, what am I doing? When I'm loving, I can't covet. When I have loved someone, I can't covet. So what do I owe them? Not to take from them, but to give to them. All right. So that takes us to the next step. Be careful what you wish for. Why? Because coveting itself, this fascinated me as I was studying through this. You know, once again, why this last commandment? Why is this the last one? Because uh, coveting is a gateway sin to multiple other sins. It is a root sin that ends up destroying people's lives in all kinds of ways. We're going to look at that in a minute. But James puts it this way. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You see what he said? People murder because they started with coveting. They started with desire. Murder, bad. Where did it start? Coveting. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Where do fights and quarrels come from? Coveting. You want something, what somebody else has so much, you're willing to fight with them over it. Where did the fight come from? Coveting. It started with coveting. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Prayers not answered. Why? Because you're asking for things you're coveting rather than asking for the will of God. You don't have because you're asking from your desire of your flesh to please you, not because you're seeking to please God. Coveting. You adulterous people. James gets a little bit strong in his language, I think. You know, Anybody else agree? You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's that be careful what you wish for. We get caught up wishing for what's in the world, what ends up happening to us. We end up finding ourselves as an enemy of God instead of a friend of God. Coveting is a basic and pervasive evil, for it is the very root of so many different forms of sins. This is Paul was writing it to Timothy. He said, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Coveting money, coveting the desire. Look, is, it, is, it, is it is it wrong to work with your hands, to make a living, to have that you might give? No, there's nothing wrong with that. We're supposed to. Is it, is it wrong to try to honor God with our work and what we're about? No. Is it wrong to covet riches for the sake of riches? Yes. But we don't like to talk about that. Why? Because they become our gods. This is the love of money becomes the root of all kinds of evil. That love of money is a form of coveting. And we're going to look at an example of this. You know, if you go back and you read through the Old Testament, this is amazing. And you look at all the laws, the regulations in the Old Testament, guess what those laws are doing? They're actually protecting your heart from coveting. How? Because there's laws about taking care of the poor. There's laws about how you treat your servants. There's laws about gleaning, in other words, leaving things for the poor. There's laws about how you lend money. There's laws about the proper way of making pledges and vows. There's laws about how you take the spoils of war and how that works. All of these things are introduced into the law of God. What? To stop the heart from coveting. If we live by those things, we cut off what coveting will do to the heart. Notice, when we give, we can't be acting to take. So, God, so this, is, this, is, this is my proposition here. The reason why God gave us the commandment, thou shalt not covet, Catch this. He's literally trying, if we start here at this commandment, we are literally protected from, keeping, from, from failing in all the others. If I stop my heart from coveting, I won't murder. I won't steal. I won't commit adultery. I won't take. It starts here. If I can stop my heart from coveting, I literally keep all the rest of them. I actually make God my God instead of what I'm coveting. All right, so let's look at a few lives that have been destroyed by coveting. First one we want to mention, has anybody heard of a guy named Balaam? Anybody heard of the guy that talked to his donkey or his donkey talked to him? The most amazing thing about that story is that his donkey talked to him and he acted like it was normal. I'm like, I don't get it. It's like, dude, you just talk back to your donkey like this is a thing. I don't, anyway. What breaks my heart about this story is this guy was anointed by the Holy Spirit to prophetically protect Israel, to prophesy the coming Messiah. But coveting makes him one of the anti-heroes of Scripture. Coveting makes him an enemy of God. Peter says it this way, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, and they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, What did he do? When he couldn't curse Israel, he told Moab, well, the real way to get them is to send your women in there so that that they will commit idolatry with your women, and then uh, then they will be accursed because of their sin. He taught others how to make them to fall before God in order that he might have gain. He coveted the riches more than all of the gifts God had given him. He could have been a hero of the Scriptures. Do you see that? Here was somebody set up by God to be a hero, and coveting is what makes him an evil character. Another one was Saul. Anybody remember King Saul? King Saul called of God, anointed by God, made a king over Israel. And what did he do? He was told to go into the Amalekites and completely destroy them. One of, the, one of the, the, the prime enemies of Israel who have over and over sought to destroy Israel. And he went in, and what did he do? He spared the king, and he spared all the spoil, all the good stuff. He coveted the very thing God said, don't touch, it will spoil you. And it did. What could have happened to be the called king of Israel and have the opportunity to live righteous? And to have literally your entire reputation for all of history to be gone because you coveted and never found a place for repentance. Never found a place for repentance. How about one more? Anybody heard of a guy named Judas? Judas! It's it's ubiquitous in our I mean, you hear the name Judas, you immediately go, ooh, enemy, bad guy. Wait a minute. He was called by Jesus as an apostle. He went out two by two, healing people, spreading the gospel. He was one of the 12 closest to Jesus. What caused him to shipwreck? Coveting. Coveting. The scripture says that Jesus made him in charge of the money bags. And he used to skim off the top of the money bag and put it in his own pockets, and when Mary pours out, takes the most expensive thing she could, the, the oil of spikenard, art and pours it, anoints Jesus' feet. That could have been sold and given to the poor. He wasn't caring about the poor. He was caring about what he could have skimmed off of it if it was sold. And he is known through history, known through history as Judas because of coveting. So how does coveting work in our hearts? There's two way coveting works in our hearts. This is the way it works. The first thing it does is it appeals to a depraved heart. How many of the Scripture says the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things? Oh, but trust your heart. Yeah. (laughs) No, don't trust your heart. Trust the Word of God. So... So what happens in the heart? When, when we're talking about the heart, I'm not talking about a person's spirit, but what happens in our soul where we begin to desire somebody else's possessions? That just happens. It happens. Okay. Here's, but it's the second part that causes it to become sin. It's when we don't check that desire, we entertain it in our imaginations, and uh, and the unwillingness. This is what's going on. Our unwillingness to check that imagination. That's coveting. Our rebellion against the voice of God to say no to that. The fact that it came into your head, step one, big deal. We live in a world with sin. Sin's going to float all the time. The enemy's going to put all kinds of stuff in your head. We're going to have all kinds of desires that are part of our flesh, a part of our soul. That's not the big deal. The big deal is when we begin to entertain it and we begin to let it go. And at that moment, what we are doing by doing that is we're literally saying no to God. That's the moment it becomes coveting. All right, James says, let no one say he was tempted. I am being tempted when he is tempted. I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Notice he doesn't say he is lured and enticed because the devil made him do it. Will the devil use those things? Absolutely, because he knows how to manipulate you. But it's your desire. Then desire when it is conceived and gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Okay, now what's fascinating to me is because this is a fact of humanity, what does it lead to? It leads to God's grace. That should be good news for everyone sitting here. It leads to God's grace. Why? Because it's possible to covet and not actually do the thing you're coveting. Let me tell you what that demonstrates. In other words, it's possible. Jesus talks about this, right? This is what Jesus talks about. He says, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery. Have you actually physically gone and committed adultery? No, you haven't actually physically done and do it. But what's Jesus saying? You have coveted, and the moment you have coveted, the moment you chased after that in your imagination, the moment you refuse to cut that off, what you have done is demonstrate your own moral guilt before God. You're guilty before God without even doing it. What it demonstrates is the human heart, the depravity of the human heart. So God actually gave us a commandment to show us we needed His grace. How graceful is that? How amazing is that? And that's what Paul talks about. Uh, In Romans 7, that's what it's all about. Listen to how he puts it. He says, What shall I say then? That the law is sin? Is thou shalt not covet a sin? No, by no means. Yet if, I had not, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For if I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Because it says, thou shalt not covet, what do I see? God's law is good. God's law is holy. God's law is just. And my heart isn't. My heart isn't. Why? Because I'm doing the very thing it says not to do. And it's not because I'm acting it out. It's just because it dwells in me. And then Paul goes and says this. says This is one of the weirdest scriptures. Another one of them weird scriptures. 724. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from my body of death? I'm wretched. Why? Because I look at God's law. It's perfect. It's holy. It's good. It's just. That's what I want. I want to live by that. And then I look at what I do inside even if I don't even do it I'm filled morally culpable before God simply because of my motives and then it says this thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our lord weird wretched man that I am thanks be to God okay how many think that's strange you're thanking Jesus cuz you're wretched anybody else think that's strange i remember i'm reading it going why would i be thanking Jesus cuz i'm wretched Because it demonstrates the greatness of His grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free. I've been set free. There's no condemnation. There's no shame. There's no guilt. I can take that very darkness of my heart and give it to Him. And He takes the very goodness of His heart and gives it to me. That's grace. That's what Jesus does. And that came because we could see it through thou shalt not covet. So what do we do to begin? What do we do when we begin to desire and covet? How do we overcome this? We'll close out with this. You recognize that this is serious, guys. This is no small thing. This isn't like the bottom of the Ten Commandments. Well, you know, I did good on the previous nine. I'm good with that. No, 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 no. This is the root and the gateway. To literally the rest of it. you got to recognize this is serious. Number two, got to guard against it. Number three, you got you to confess it and renounce it. Number four, you have to put it to death. Number five, you put on Christ. Then you become rich towards God. You realize where real joy and pleasure comes from. And you allow God, godliness to be your contentment. Let me explain those briefly. recognize the gravity but sexually immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you as is proper among the saints for you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness that is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God i think that's kind of establishes how serious this is number 2 guard against it Here's the point of guard against it. Guarding against it means be aware that this is going to go through your mind and your heart and look for where those places are so you can stop it. Take care, Jesus says, and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Your possessions do not identify who you are. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not on earth. Immediately confess and renounce it. Proverbs, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. What does that mean? It's not a formula. It's not a formula. What it means is it just means be humble, honest, and truthful with God. God, I'm struggling with covetousness right now. I really want that. And I know it's wrong. I hate it. I don't like it. And I'm just being honest and transparent with you. It's not a formula. It's a covenant relationship. It's appealing to his grace. Put it to death. What does put it to death mean? Put it to death. Look. Okay, who wants the key to stop sinning? Uh, Three or four people, five people, anybody else want the key to stop sinning? All right, here it is. Very simple. Stop sinning. That's what he says. That's literally what he means. He says, put it to death. Now, let me tell you how that works out. How that works out is you do it. You fall. You fail. You confess. You repent. And you do everything you can to work out putting it to death. It doesn't mean that one time you put it to death and now you're successful, it's all over. It means you struggle and wrestle against those things that are against you. Now, how do you do that? You do it first by rejecting them and everything we talked about. But the second thing is what you put on in its place. You put on Christ. You put on being holy. You put on being beloved. You put on being compassionate. You put on being kindness. You put on being humble. You put on being meek. You put on being patient. Do you know what that means? What that means is none of those things are feelings. You don't need a feeling to do a single one of them. You choose to do opposed to what you feel in order to become. Then what? You be rich towards God. You recognize where real riches come from. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. God said, full this night your soul is required of you. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Whoever lays up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. So you start laying up treasures for God. You realize the true source of joy and pleasure. Look, all of the... Here, here's the thing. Let me tell you something about sin. Sin doesn't strike a real desire in you. It strikes a counterfeit desire. That desire you have for the sin is masking a true desire you really have. There is real joy in In the presence of the Lord. There is real pleasure in the presence of the Lord. Okay? Uh, uh, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So what you do is when inordinate feelings come into you, you you go, okay, what is this masking? What real thing is this keeping me from? Let me be rich towards God in that. Let me pursue that joy. Let me do what it takes to turn away from the other and embrace that. Let me recognize there's something real behind this feeling that I have that's this counterfeit. And then finally, you allow godliness to be our contentment. Paul wrote to Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can't take anything out of the world. There's nothing that you, <laughs> how many know that? How many have heard that from our fathers? When you're growing? You didn't bring it into the world, you're not taking it out of the world. No, didn't, we all hear that. Some of us have heard that, right? <laughs> and then, usually what goes along with that is I brought you in, I can take you out. But that's, <laughs> you've heard that one too. But what's the point? Why are we holding on so hard to things that are going to go away instead of holding on to those things that will last forever? Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And you know what he did? He gave his life. You know what his wife did? Went right behind him into, those, into the Alka and gave them the Bible in their language, transformed a society. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a stare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. We just listened to three lives, and I could have gone many, many more, who literally God gave them everything, and they lost it all from coveting because they didn't repent. To me, it's not that they coveted it's that they didn't repent. They could find no place to return to God. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Notice, it doesn't say some have gone to hell. It means they wandered from the faith. And pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Look, guys, it's a fight. It's a fight. God gave us this commandment because he's genius. He's wise. No, you can't go into a courtroom and hold somebody accountable for it. But you will go before the court of heaven and be held accountable for it. And if you obey it, you will protect yourself from so many other evils. And what does it take? It takes a struggle. It takes the fight. It takes fighting the good fight of faith. So we, we close out with this looking at the Ten Commandments, the first and the last. What do the first and the last give us? They give us the proper order of worship. The proper order of worship. They're essentially rooted in the heart. The proper order order of worship starts here. It comes to here. We have a set of principles that order how we are to worship God and how we are to love one another. Amen?